Mercury, you're getting close. You're really close physically between Mercury and Earth. Hey, very good. You guys got that. That helps. What causes dimples? Undeveloped muscle, under overdeveloped muscle. Genetics, pressures during birth, use of forceps, or too much kissing the baby on the cheek? <laughs> you might be surprised. Okay. Nope, not anything to do with muscles. Genetics, that's it. You are smart. Of these summertime smells, which one brings back pleasant memories, according to research? Coconut, <laughs> cut grass, chlorine, charred hamburger, charcoals from the grill, fish. Cut grass is absolutely right. In the U.S., what's the most popular selling grilling meat throughout the summer? It is hot dogs. Yeah, absolutely. Lee's parents immigrated from China. They have five kids. First four are La, Lee, Lai, Lo. What's the next child's name? Yeah, if they have five kids, and it's, call, and it's Lee's parents with five kids, L-E-E -E with five, and there's La, Lee with one E, Lai, Lo. It's got to be Lee because he's the fifth child, apparently. Okay, his name is spelled differently, okay? Here we go. Below are the top five summer vacation activities. Okay, this is in America, 2017. Which of these, these are all in the, you know, the top so many activities that people get involved with during summer, their summer vacation. Which one is number one? What's that? It's not national parks. It's not historical sites. It's not water sports. Shopping is number one. I cannot believe this. Okay. Actually, people they, in the surveys, they said, okay, what, which one do you do the Do you do? They do. It's not mine. Is absolutely right. Mine would be 0%. Okay. This is what they say. 54% say the top, and then the others pick and choose from here's what people do. Here we go. Let's do uh, real serious stuff. Let's get to Ephesians 6. In Ephesians 6, those of you who are just joining us, we're in a series that we're talking about the spirit world. We're talking about angels, demons, things that are around us. We were looking at Ephesians 6 a couple weeks ago, and we did a little bit of in-depth on Ephesians 6, and we made these observations that in Ephesians 6, he makes the comment, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord in the power of his might, verse 10. He says, put on the whole panoply or armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Very clearly, he is saying we are going to be attacked. The word for standing here means to withstand. Okay, to be able to anchor your feet and to push off those who are attacking you. And then he goes on and explains, okay, and he's alluded in verse 11 that there's attacks of the devil. Then he goes on and explains a little bit more. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Therefore, you need to take the armor of God. Now, what he's pointed out to us is that there are enemies who are attacking us who are believers, brethren, any and all of us. We're not going to be able to, we're not going to be able to be immune from such attacks because they come to us. We don't have to seek them out. He's also pointed out that the devil is in charge of these, but there are, they are coming from multiple different sources. All the plurals that he uses, the principalities, the powers. Those words also indicate that they are ordered they are organized. They're in an orderly fashion. They are uh, words that would be used to describe a military hierarchy, 
the principality's powers against the rulers of darkness or, um, uh, or a political hierarchy. So we know that our enemy has concentrated attacks. It is coordinated. We know that they come from multiple different sources within that realm, that they are organized, many in number. And then he talks about that idea where he's mentioned that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And he talks about the fiery darts of Satan. The idea is that Satan and his hordes attack us. And we've been taught, we're going to talk in the next couple of weeks, we're going to start talking about the armor that's listed here, what it is and how we should apply it. But what we're talking about right now is how does he attack us? In what ways? And we were talking about some of the fiery darts the last couple of weeks, and we pointed out that these fiery darts that come in the book of Genesis in chapter 3, he used doubts. Yea, hath God said. The desires she looked upon the fruit, saw that it was good. He used deceit. Yea, he makes the comment that says, if you eat, you shall become as gods. And then he denial, you shall not die. And so he uses those even in our attacks. We made this observation last week that one of the fiery darts that he uses is division between believers. Anger between family members who are of the faith. That he makes the comment, be angry but sin not, is the idea. Let let not the sun go down upon your wrath, lest you give place to the devil. The idea is that uncontrolled anger, um, uh, unrighteous anger, can be used by Satan. We pointed out that in 2 Corinthians, that idea of not forgiving somebody is giving Satan an advantage. And so we talked from other passages last week about how that jealousy in James 3. We talked about how this, um, this idea in, in 1 Timothy 5 in the division by gossip and backbiting that he talks about in 1 Timothy 5 and then second, in, in 1 Thessalonians 2. The idea of assuming the worst of somebody and just making without facts assumptions like they did Paul all of that creates division. All of that is wrong. All of that in every one of those texts, it's mentioned about how Satan uses division to, or, or anger or unforgiveness, all those things to cause division and break up the unity of the believers. We ended up talking last week and saying that the unity is so critical in the New Testament. It's used in the church sense about how we should be united some 30 times. We pointed out that in his Lord's Prayer, his high priestly prayer the night before he dies, right after the Last Supper, is what he does is he prays for unity. And he says, let them be united even as we are united. Let them be one. And he's praying not only for those who are his followers, but those who shall be his followers. If you read the whole text, you'll see what I mean. And one of the reasons that he talks about unity is so that they may know that you have sent me. By your love, by your love, he says, that men shall know that you are my disciples. Unity is a critical factor for evangelism. Unity is a critical factor for doing the work of God. And so it becomes an object of satanic attacks. Where we stopped last week was here, right at this spot. And it was, how do we resist division? How do we resist the temptation to not forgive? How do we resist the temptation to get involved with backbiting and gossip? Let me just make some, some observations. You probably have better things to share. But let me just make some, some uh, observations on all these. When we're battling a vice, one of the ways to battle the vice is to put on a virtue. We're, that comes from Ephesians 4. Put off the old man and do what? 
put on the new man. It is the principle of replacement. In order to put something out of our life, we need to replace it with something good. It's like when I first got saved, one of the things I knew that uh, as I was being mentored was that I needed to change my music listening habits. Because the music I listened to was not godly music. It didn't honor God. It was very, very oriented towards sex and, and, um, and drugs and different things of that sort. Okay, And so you can put music out of your life and say, I'm not going to listen to that stuff anymore that is about rebellion or about you know, doing your own thing or about selfishness. And it's great. You can stop listening to it. But if you're a creature like most of us are, you need to replace that with other good music or that bad music's going to do what? It's going to come back because you're so used to turning on the radio, listening to something when you're driving. And so I don't know about you, but empty space, empty sound is not my particular choice. I usually want something around me to just fill in those gaps. And so it's the same thing about, about you say, okay, I'm going to stop watching certain vulgar TV programs. I'm not going to watch them anymore. I'm just going to sit there. Well, if you just sit there and do nothing, what's going to happen? You're going to turn it back on because of boredom. And so you, the principle of replacement, if I'm going to change my speech, if I'm going to change my thinking, I've got to replace it with something good. Okay. So that virtue, if I'm tempted to be angry towards somebody, if I'm tempted to be unforgiving, what do I do to counter that? Here's some thoughts to counter it. Okay. Seek to commend another believer. Instead of getting involved with critical thoughts and speech and conversation, turn it around. Seek to commend another believer in the unity of the body. Thank somebody. Go out of your way to commend somebody else rather than be critical. Number two, I'll give you another thought. Pray for others. Pray for others within the body of Christ that you are worshiping with. Pray for them. Take the bulletin. Pray for those individuals. Take the prayer corner. Take a church directory. Pray for different individuals. It is hard to stay angry at somebody if you are praying for them. In fact, if you're praying for somebody, you're going to want to know what you can pray about, and it's going to enhance your conversations with them. Refuse, absolutely refuse to participate in criticism of others that is undue, inappropriate, or gossip. Just cut it off. You say, but my best friend is one who really likes to do that. Then you need to, what do you mean change? Get another best friend, okay? Get another best friend. Do this. Seek to compliment and encourage those who do better than you do. Instead of being jealous, instead of being upset that that person is in charge, that person has got this award, instead of being critical of them, compliment them, encourage them. Go out of your way to say, hey, I, I really appreciate what you've done, I, you know, and, and you know, you've got this opportunity, I'm going to be praying for you. Instead of being jealous... Be an encourager. Give me another thought. Seek to compliment and speak well of someone, well, someone else to others. Now, this is ta- not talking to them, but talking to others, like at your home. Instead of going home and having roasted church members for lunch, speak well of people. At the table, pre- pre- present before your kids conversation of compliments. 
of building up others, of being appreciative of others instead of being critical. It is too easy for all of us to find faults in other people's ministry or what they do or don't do. Instead of doing that, work at and set a goal. If you don't set goals, things don't change. Set a goal where you can monitor and you can say to yourself, I'm achieving this. I can see that I'm achieving it. That at least three times a week you are speaking highly of other people and complimenting them before your kids, before family members. You're talking well of other individuals. And most of all here, if there are personal conflicts, I shouldn't say if, when there are personal conflicts, deal with them biblically. It is not biblical to go to other people and to share your gripes and, and complaints. If you have an issue with somebody, you are biblically obligated to go to them. This is, this is, this is not up for, uh, up for discussion or vote. This is a command of Jesus Christ that if you have a problem with somebody, you're supposed to go to talk to them personally and privately, not, with, not to a whole bunch of other people first. Go to the individual. If you've got a problem with a family member, you've got a problem with a fellow worshiper, go to the individual, talk with them. It is amazing how many times our conflicts are simply misunderstanding and not having all the facts. And so be very careful in this area working and protecting unity in the body of Christ. You want the unity in your household, now take it to the household of God. Protect the unity. Otherwise, Satan's going to get inroads. There's another area that Satan attacks. Let's talk about this one. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he is talking about physical ailments that he inflicts. Now, we all know the story of Job. In Job chapter 1, Satan comes to God and God and says basically when God is bragging on Job, you know, Satan's going to say, hey, really God, Job really fears you and serves you for nothing. He's doing it because, you know, everything's going right in his life. And so in this conversation, Satan dares the Lord to allow trials to come into Job's life. And let's see if Job's going to remain faithful if he has trials in his life. The Lord allows Satan to attack Job and to try to afflict him so he turns against the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, let's pick up the text. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is talking. Now to get the full understanding of what's going on, go to the beginning of the chapter. Don't just jump down into the middle of the chapter, but get the full flow of what he's saying and it'll explain why this happens. It says at the beginning of chapter 12, it is not expedient for me, doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above about 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knows. What he is talking about is he's talking about knowing somebody who had a quote-unquote out-of-the-body experience. Is it Paul when about the, and this fits the timing, is it Paul when he was at Lystra and he was stoned and left for dead? That's a possibility. Historically, accurately, as far as time frame, that could be him. And he is, and, and if it is him, I find it very, very interesting. He isn't going and making this the center of his message about what he saw in heaven. And he's not making movies about it. He's saying, I don't know if it was real or if it wasn't real. I don't know if out of the body what I saw was real or wasn't real or if I was even out of the body. God knows. God knows. And then he makes the, makes the comment how that he was caught up into paradise and heard what kind of things? 
unspeakable words, which is what? Not lawful for men to share or to utter. In other words, I don't think it's appropriate for me to try to, try to make this my message. My message isn't about, you know, what I saw and the experiences I had. I find that very interesting because of how many movies and books are made about people who have out-of-body experiences. And yet Paul, under the inspiration of Scripture, says that is not something I'm going to focus on because it is too questionable, too doubtful, too speculative, too subjective. I'm not going to talk about that and make that my message. Rather, I'm going to make my message the clear, clear revelation given by God that's recorded in the Word of God. And so Paul does that, or he's sharing that, and he goes on, of such a one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities, for though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think me above that which he sees me to be, and he hears of me. Paul is battling with, should I present myself in this, you know, in this spectacular way or not? He goes, and he says, because I have had revelations I have had visions, Paul is saying. I have had, clearly, I have had communication directly from the Lord. And so he goes on, he says, lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of these revelations, there was given to me a what? A thorn in the flesh. What else does he call it? Not just a thorn in the flesh, but what's he refer to it as? The messenger of Satan to buffet me so that I should what? So, so that lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord three times that it might depart from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Okay, now in this passage, he is making it clear that God had allowed Satan to buffet him to bring something physical into his life, a thorn in the flesh. What it is, we don't know. Some thinks it's his eyesight. There are documented records of people who have written about Paul in that first century, and they have described him. Some who have said that they had seen him, how that he had eye difficulties. That makes sense. It could be that, because in the book of Galatians, do you remember how he says, you see with such large writing that I am writing. If he had physical problems with his eyes, then it's a matter of, okay, um, you know, he had to print really, really large when he was printing. Otherwise, most of the time, he used what was called an amanuensis. That is a secretary, somebody to write his words for him, and that's why he usually says that I and Timothy are writing, or I and Luke are writing, because if he had the difficulties with his eyes, we don't know if that's what it is. Some say it was his voice. There are some authors that talk that Paul had a really gravelly voice and a really rough voice and he wasn't, he wasn't pleasant in appearance. We don't know anything but that, is, that comes from early history. They could be correct. We don't know from Scripture what it was. But he was given some physical ailment and that physical ailment is given for two reasons. One, it was given to prevent pride in his life, to keep him humble. One was a messenger from Satan. I can't imagine Satan being allowed to attack him to keep him humble. Rather, the attack from Satan would be to drive him away from the Lord. And so here you have a physical attack, just like in the book of Job. Satan was allowed to attack God's servant. Satan meant it for evil, and God is going to use it for 
good. Is that possible? Can something come into your life that Satan might want to destroy you with, but God builds you up with that same thing? Absolutely. And one of the areas is physical ailments, physical illnesses that come upon our lives. The point is Satan can use illness. When I say Satan, I'm broadening that to his demonic hordes. They can use illnesses or calamities to attack us, to bring into our life. Now that does not mean that every time we get a cold or we sneeze, oh, Satan's attacking me. Okay, and therefore we better say when we sneeze, God bless you to get rid of the demons. Okay, that's not what we're saying. We're not saying that every calamity is a direct result of a satanic attack. Okay? Indirectly they are, because all, everything go, all these evils can be brought back to the Garden of Eden with that attack. But sometimes direct physical attacks are purely solely our fault. Okay? Is it possible that we have made choices in our life that cause us physical calamities when we get older? Yes, no? Oh yeah, oh yeah. All of a sudden when we get older we have liver ailments, kidney ailments. Well part of that, that lifestyle we led early on, could that have caused those kidney liver ailments? Sure. Forgiveness doesn't remove consequences in all cases. Um, could somebody be immoral and end up with an STD? Yes, okay? And some of those illnesses could be our fault. They could be consequences. Some could be God-given the birth defect of John chapter 8, uh, John 9, excuse me. John chapter 9, this man was born, do you remember what it was? He's born what? Blind, and the disciples immediately say, who hath sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, neither, this is for the glory of God. Can God use birth defects? Absolutely, absolutely. So what we're saying here is, when it comes to the physical illnesses and ailments, that not every single one is a direct result of satanic attack. However, they could be, okay? We may never know which one designed the attack. Could it be from God or could it be from Satan? Here's here's a question that we've got to go back to the book of Job. When is Job ever told that his physical attacks were instrumented by Satan? Where is it in the book of Job that he's, it's revealed to him? It's not. He is never told who instigated these attacks. Never. There is no revealing to him. The only reason we know is we are given at the beginning of the book that inside story. But Job was never told. Job's conclusion is Job is told he's supposed to do what? In chapters 40, 41, 42. What's the conclusion that his conversation with God? God tells him simply to... Trust him. Because I, God says, I am, what's that big word that we use? Okay, it's not just faithful, but we're in control of things. He is sovereign. God is sovereign to control everything he chooses to control. And so what we have in this is this fact that in like in 2 Corinthians 12, what Satan could use for evil, God can use for good, which leads me to a very important thought. When we are dealing with trials, when we are dealing with troubles, the ailments, the physical attacks, our response, our questions, usually are we ask the wrong ones. Most people when they have a physical ailment or a physical attack of some sort, what's the question they ask? Why? Or why me? Okay, who did this to me? That's not the right question. From a Bible-believing point of view, what's the right question? Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's not who did this to me or why me. It's what should I do or how should I act? Because whether it is from the evil one or whether it is from the sovereign one, 
our reaction should be the same. We should remain faithful, and we should count it all joy. We should remember that my grace is sufficient. Okay, so the same, no matter who's brought the, the attack, we're supposed to respond the same way. And instead of getting hung up on why me, why me, it should be what should I do? How should I act? That's the key question. That's the key reaction. So you and I, in order to resist some of these physical attacks, we've got to do what's right. We've got to think what's right. Here's another attack that comes up that Satan often brings. Take your Bible and go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 5. This passage is so important, and we usually pull a verse right out of context and don't look at the entire text. We're in 1 Peter 5. Now, in 1 Peter 5, here's the verse that most of us remember Verse 9, your adversary the devil walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Biblical truth, a warning to us that Satan is attacking. Satan is trying to destroy us. Did you ever catch the context? It is in the middle of a paragraph that's dealing with discouragement. Watch what happens in this text. In 1 Peter chapter 5, jump down to, let's pick up about verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Now, that's applicable to everyone. Now, the previous seven verse, uh, five verses have been dealing with church leadership in particular, the elders, the pastors of the church that he's talking to, the bishops, all the same office that he's talking to, and he says, don't be lords. And he kind of like a transitional segue statement, he says, okay, you as well as everybody else, let's make sure that we have humility in our lives. And then he says in verse 7, another one of those final statements that he's giving those final orders before he wraps up the book. Casting all your what? Care upon him. Why? He cares for you. Then he makes another statement. Be sober. And that, by the way, is not stop drinking. Sober. Anybody have another word there in verse 8 for be sober? Be vigilant? Do you have any, anybody with a different translation, different words? Be, be what? Be self-controlled, okay? What about vigilant, the second word? Be watchful, okay. The word sober in the New Testament is usually not dealing with drinking, okay, and not being drunk, but it has the concept of being self-controlled. Well, that's why the sober is used, because, you know, when somebody's drunk, they lose self-control. And so what he's talking about in literal ideas, be self-controlled, don't, don't be controlled by your circumstances, but you learn to, you know, to act, not react. In other words, you maintain control and be watchful. Be self-controlled, be watchful in the middle of what? Well, look at the previous verse. Because of the, your cares, your troubles, okay, maintain self-control, be careful, because your adversary, the roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour, whom you need to resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. So sandwiched between that verse about Satan attacking are two verses that talk about your cares and the sufferings that happen to the brethren in the world that are happening to you, the same things. This passage is talking about believers facing trials and getting discouraged. And the tool that Satan uses to devour many believers is discouragement, is the idea of just being, being unable to just continue on, not remaining steadfast. And so taking it in its context... Satan uses the discouragements of life that come to us. Now, I, I, I stop and say, well, wait a minute. 
How is it, you, you look at others around you that are believers, that are brothers and sisters in Christ, how do trials adversely affect believers? I mean, what goes through some believers' minds where Satan gets the victory through some trial or trouble that they're facing, through some worry? What's that? Okay, okay, comparing self with others and saying, basically, woe is me. Everybody else has it fine, but woe is me. What other thoughts come to mind? What's that? Oh, yeah, Ma Matthew 13, the trials and troubles chokes out the word. What other, what other thoughts come to our minds that give Satan the victory at those moments? What's that? Okay. Oh, good, good. Can, do believers ever start questioning their assurance of salvation in the middle of trials and troubles? Yeah, some of us have. Somebody over here? Somebody saying something? God's abandoned me. Okay. I'm all alone. I put down some of the things that I hear. Okay, comments that people will say or the thoughts that they get, that, that they feel overwhelmed. You know, it's too much. I can't handle it. It's more than I can bear. Or do, do people ever get fearful over what the next thing? Do people ever get afraid of going to the doctor and hearing the report? Okay, those things normally come. We, you know, make these statements, okay? And I've heard people say it doesn't pay to serve God. I serve God, and as soon as I serve God, all of a sudden things, the bottom falls out of, of the job and everything else, okay? And the whole point is we feel like nobody has this bad. Now, these things come into our life. Here's the big question, okay? If we are facing health issues, if we are facing troubles, and it is a satanic attack, and again, we might not know if it is, what are we supposed to do facing those difficulties so that we do what's right and thus resist the attack? What are some of the prescriptions given by God to fend off discouragement? What did you say? Casting cares upon Him. Okay. Getting into the Word. Anything else? Okay, pray. But, okay, you're, I'm, I agree with you. We need to pray more. But some people in discouragement, what do they say about prayer? It feels like my prayers are going nowhere. So what do you tell that individual? <laughs> I do, you, you still got to pray. You still got to pray. Have you ever felt like not going to work? Anybody ever feel like not going to work? Okay. What do you have to do? You still got to go to work. You don't feel like it. You know, any of you ever been really, really, you've seen somebody going through a serious illness, leukemia, cancer, and they don't feel like eating, but what do they have to do? They still have to eat, okay? You don't feel like it, and everything changes, and the taste buds, everything changes, but they still have to do it. Somebody goes through a death in the family member. They don't feel like eating. They don't feel like getting around other people. They feel like isolating themselves, but they still need to do what is right, even though you don't feel like it. Okay, so we need to pray. We need to do that. Anything else that you would tell somebody to do? To fend off the attack of discouragement? Praise the Lord? Okay. Let's, let's pick that up, okay? Not in fact, what does James tell us? I put it this way. Assess the benefit or value that can come from the trial. How did James put it? Count it all joy. Literally, the count it is assess it. Look for the benefits that can come from this. Count it all joy, okay? The praising, the panic. Um, I think this is important, okay? Maybe not. Don't keep rehearsing the bad. 
Okay, don't just keep on in your mind thinking about how bad I have it, how bad I have it. We've got to bring our mind into captivity. And the more we keep on rehearsing how bad it is, the worse we feel. Okay, and I'm not saying be, be um, in denial. Okay, but the fact is you've got to be careful of where your mind goes. I think music is a tool that God has given to deal with discouragement and a lot of temptation. It's a powerful weapon. So listening to good music that doesn't, and by the way, do certain genres of music put you into discouragement? Yes, no? Certain music, mood music, pick the right music and pick the music that gets you to focus on God's faithfulness, God's goodness, not, you know, the blues, you know, and wow, you know, my truck just broke down, the dog ran away, and the refrigerator is, you know. Don't listen to the music with more trials. Be very, very careful what you listen to. Surround yourself with encouraging believers. Okay, this is critical. We're going to see it uh, in two weeks. We're going to see it in the life of Elijah, how he made a huge, probably three weeks, how he made a terrible mistake that he isolated himself. And one of the things God tells him, you need to get around other believers in order to get out of that suicide watch that Elijah goes into. Serve others in need who have worse situations. One of the best ways to get out of focusing on yourself and thinking about how bad you have it, go and serve somebody. Go visit in the rest home. Go visit some widows who don't have a spouse. Okay? When, when, you, feel, when you feel like you are, oh, wow, wow, you know, I feel really bad because I've got this, this case of uh, shingles. And woe is me, I've got shingles. Then go and visit somebody who's dying of cancer. That puts shingles into perspective. Because there's always somebody that you can minister to, and you're going to find that they have worse scenarios than you do. And it helps keep it in perspective. Don't isolate yourself. Don't give into the pity, the anger. Now, these are practical things that we can do to resist the enemy. But the enemy doesn't stop there. Take your Bibles and go to first. Well, I'm going to show it here. You're close by. First Timothy. First Timothy talks about how Satan in chapter three, how Satan uses pride. First Timothy chapter three. There's a statement that's made there, and in this text, in First Timothy three, he's talking in this text about preachers, okay, and how they're often attacked, and they're attacked by pride, which makes perfect sense to all of us. We understand how that can happen. Now, the reason Satan uses pride because he's the pro at it. Remember, I will be as God. I will exalt him. In, in the text that we already read in several weeks ago, in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, the picture is Satan being, being exalting himself above the Lord, being moved by pride, filled his heart with pride. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, he makes this warning, not a newly saved individual, somebody who hasn't had time to grow and to really mature. Shouldn't be somebody who is going to be a pastor, elder in a church. He says, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, okay, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Okay, the fact is that preachers are prone to fall into the temptations of the devil. In this case, that idea is being lifted up with pride being caught up with them. Oh, man, it can happen so easy. It can, I, remember, I remember my first week here, my first week in 87. I had been here for several years, 
And it was my first Sunday preaching, January, whatever it was, the 2nd or 3rd of January of 1987. And I had come from another church. I had been here for five years, left for two, and started another church. And my very first Sunday here, somebody walked up to me, and they said, oh, we are so glad that you are now the pastor. We know that the church is really going to grow because now you're the pastor. The previous pastor, we did not like him at all. Okay. Now, the irony of that conversation was the previous pastor was my brother, okay? And so I said to the individual, do you know that the previous pastor and I are blood brothers? Yeah, but we didn't like him. <laughs> uh, I got to tell you that there, there was no pride in, in, in tempta temptation of pride that moment. There was the temptation of anger, okay? And the temptation like, I will never trust you people, y'all, if that's, if that's where you're going. You're just... There's a book that came out by that time. It's called The Dragons in the Church. I don't know, any of you ever read it? It was written to be careful of the dragons in the church, the individuals who come up and they might present themselves in a very good light, but they're dragons. Be very, very cautious. And, my, and I remember reading that book just before that conversation, and I'm thinking, if they are willing to slay my brother in front of me, guess what's going to happen within a short time? I'm going to be slain just like them, okay? But isn't that true? The people who are willing to gossip with you about others, probably the fact is they are gossiping. If they not only gossip with you, they will probably be gossiping about you when you're not around. So you've got to be very, very careful. In this case, Paul is saying, okay, don't get lifted up with pride. You know, people come up and say, oh, wow, you're fantastic. You are amazing. And most of you are. You are fantastic and amazing. But we don't want to be lifted up with pride. Okay, we've got to be very careful. There's a story, talking about pride, there's a story, and you've heard in history, Queen Victoria, okay? Fabulous, you know, phenomenal reign of Queen Victoria and how she ruled in Britain during the Victorian age. And there's a story that's told about her, her grandson comes to the throne about the time that they were trying to decide what to name the biggest crew, you know, ship for passengers that has ever been built that's coming out of the London wharfs. And so they're making two of them, and the one that's going to be christened first, they want a name. So the builders of the ship go and they see her grandson, King George, and his, his wife, Queen Mary, and they say, we want to name this ship after England's most famous queen and most renowned queen. They are thinking Queen Victoria. Okay, but the king immediately says, my wife would be thoroughly honored to have the ship named after her. Okay, the, the shipbuilders were caught in a conundrum. Now what do we say? We didn't mean your wife. Okay, uh, but he responded immediately with this, you know, you, you got to be talking to my wife, and she was all, oh, um, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, they caught up, and so that's where we get the queen Mary, okay, that, that you hear of shipbuilding. People, like, people are, are like that at all levels of society. We can get so caught up. So what do we do? What do we do to keep ourselves humble? The problem is about the time we think we're humble, we've, we've just fallen off the wagon of humility. So what do we do to try to resist pride? What do we do? Again, we're going back to prayer. We're going back to the Word. What practical areas can you do? Here, here, I'll give you something. Somebody comes up to you and they say this. You have done a phenomenal job when you were serving as a deacon. You did a great job and as deaconess. 
I really, really, really appreciate the service that you've done for the Lord. How do you resist? Go on. When somebody compliments you, and by the way, that's true. I think that about you guys. How do you, how do you respond to it? Okay, <laughs> just what you did. <laughs> you're, you're such a... <laughs> What's that? Okay. You can, you, can, you can divert it. You can reflect it to a degree. That's appropriate, right? Okay, is reflection okay? In the sense of saying, well, yeah, it was the Lord. Is there anything else you can do? Is it wrong to say thank you? Right? Right? To say thank you, you know, and, and thank the other people as well. Okay. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing, and that's where I'm going is with this. There's nothing wrong with saying thank you. There's something wrong with saying, well, I thought I did a great job too. Yeah, that's where, <laughs> that's where it's bad, okay? But, um, but to just say thank you and then move on, but in your mind, remember, this is the Lord. It's the Lord, okay? And, you know, I want to give, give the Lord the credit in your heart and your mind to deflect to, I said reflect, I should have meant deflect. Okay, deflect it at times to commend other individuals. Um, I, I think these are some practical areas that I know I need to work with. So this is for me. The rest of you can just eavesdrop while I'm just talking to myself. I need to stop talking about myself so much in conversations. Do, do you know how this works? None of you ever do this, but I find myself tempted. If somebody has a situation, an ailment, do you ever get in conversations with individuals that if you mention you have an ailment, their ailment has to be <laughs> bigger and better? Yes, no? Okay. Um, you know, work at commending others. That, Sandy, you just mentioned that. I think that, that thought. T you know, say the thank you and then commend the others that are around. Um, we got to curb the thoughts about ourselves instead of just, you know, e e this, this was a huge battle for me. And it, probably, it still is. I haven't gotten over it. But I, but I know that sometimes where I would go and uh, visit, you know, it was like, well, if they need a, a preacher, I'm here. You know, I could really preach the service. You know, and sometimes we'd go on vacation. Guess what? We'd show up at a church, and guess what the pastor of the church is doing? He's on vacation. And it's like, well, this is providential. We showed up, and... I could preach for them. They don't know me, but maybe I should introduce myself to them. You know, my name is Wayne Burgraff. I can preach for you this morning. You know, how, how arrogant to even think that. I never did it. I, mean, I never did it. Did I ever think that for a moment? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's my pride. And it's just a matter of just, okay, resist and just sometimes shut how do you want to say it? Okay. In our house, our, the, the bad word was shut up. Our kids could not say shut up. But boy, am I tempted right now okay, to just say to myself, shut up. Okay. Okay. Genuinely rejoice when others, when others are elevated, don't have to find fault or flaws in those individuals. Genuinely, genuinely be pleased with them. This is, this is a challenge in a church setting. Next week, we're voting in elections, okay? We try every time to get a number of people so that there's not just one left unvoted, okay? So that 
so we, we try to be sensitive to those things. The, the nominating committee tries to do that. And usually we put out names, and it happens almost every year. You only get a smidgen of those number of names that have been nominated because a lot of people with different circumstances in their life, this isn't the moment that they feel the Lord would say yes. But I always pray for, I always pray for everybody on that ballot. And I want to be sensitive. Some will not be selected to serve by the church. What could be the temptation of not being selected to serve? Discouragement? I'm not appreciated. After all that I have done, this is, this is what the body thinks of me. And that's not the case. That's not the case. It could just be the providential timing of God leading people to vote as they vote. And so, you know, the one thing we want that we would encourage the individuals to do is rejoice in the fact that they weren't selected. Okay. <laughs> we can make some comments about that. But rejoice in the fact that those others were chosen at this point and pray for them and try to elevate and encourage those others who have been elected over them or chosen over them in the body. Work at putting others first. Really others first. It is so easy here. It is so easy for me. It's so easy for you. That when we come in, we're concerned about us, our comfort. We're concerned about our, our, and rightfully so. We want to be concerned about, okay, can I hear? Can I see? What about this? But at times, you know, at times even something so simple is being concerned about other people's comfort, being concerned about other individuals, being able to hear, being concerned about other individuals' needs, not just our needs, being concerned that there could be other people here who need an encouraging word besides you, and looking out and serving in that, that opportunity. Here, let me wrap up with this one, okay? There is given in the same text another challenge about how Satan attacks people. Jump down in the text. Watch what happens here. Go to verse 7. Verse 7, he's warning about young men in the ministry. He says, Moreover, he, the young man being considered for pastorate, have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. What is the snare of the devil he's talking about? What is this trap of the devil? Having a lousy testimony. Having a sloppy testimony. Not being careful. Now, in context, what he's talking about, he's talking about church leaders, okay, in particular, that they haven't been honest in their finances. They haven't been honest in, their, in how they conducted themselves in a, the affairs of this world. And he's saying that one of the ways that we are attacked is an inconsistent testimony to the lost, being sloppy with what we do and how we conduct ourselves. So we've got to bring ourselves to this question. Do our co-workers, do our neighbors, do our relatives admire our Christianity or do they laugh at it? Okay, and understand, some of us they're going to laugh at because they totally disagree with our sense of virtue. I understand that part. I'm not talking about your purity. I'm talking about your inconsistencies. The challenges that you and I may face that, okay, we go to the store. We've just been talking about being kind and being patient to the lost, but we get to the store, and the clerk at the store is one of those people who cannot figure their way out of a paper bag. You ever have those clerks? Okay. They can't give you the right change if their life depended upon it. 
and the cash register goes askewed right at that moment. And they are just absolutely lost as to how to give change for a 99-cent item when you gave them a dollar, okay? And you are in a hurry, and you blast away. You tear the proverbial snot out of them. You rip them up one side and down the other, and you storm out of there, and right behind you, a couple people in that long line, is somebody that you've been giving gospel tracts to. Do you think that affects those individuals? Do you think that that is a lousy testimony? We had, we had a case just a few weeks ago. Somebody came and told me about one of our members doing just that. And how they just, and they are, they were, they were somebody who had been visiting our church. And they recognized that person, and that person just ripped the, per, the individual behind the counter up and just chewed them out and spat them out for no fault of their own. And how that visitor said, I don't want anything to do with a church that has people who are so rude and crude. A sloppy testimony. Do others watch us and how we respond and act? It's so important that Satan can get those, get those, you know, those claws into us because we're selfish at that moment. It's all about me and my time and my moment. And I understand. I, I fully understand that if, if they're doing something, real, I, I understand there's moments we need to be firm and not be walked all over. But there's a gracious way of being firm. There's a, there's a means of doing it without ruining our testimony. Being careful. Being careful in what we do and not, not to destroy our testimony by giving in to the enemy. We're going to talk about others in a couple of weeks. Next week's our business meeting, and so that'll be a test of Satan, okay, as we go through the business. But let's get ready for worship.